um, let me tell you this little story. One of the most intense times of, of my life in, when I was driving was driving the Trail Ridge Road in the Rocky Mountain National Park. Has anybody ever driven the Trail Ridge Road? In the, so a cup few, you know what that means, right? Uh, it's this old uh, two-lane highway, um, very narrow road that goes up. You start like at the foot of the mountain where there's meadows and forest, and it goes up to about 13,000 feet of elevation. And by the time you get to the top, it's alpine tundra. There's snow on the ground all the time. It's quite a different uh, climate change. And so when you're driving up this road, it's very windy. It's very curvy. It's on the side of a mountain, and there are no guardrails. Uh, And so literally there are stretches of road where if you turn your car about three or four feet over, you're going to go off the cliff, and it's like a 200-foot drop. Um, and so you're like, oh, the trees will catch me, and I'll survive. No, that only happens in the movies, not in real life. And so we're driving, and I'm like locked on 10 and 2, and I'm like this, and Corinne's like, oh, look at the beautiful scenery. Wait a minute, don't look at the beautiful scenery. Just keep your eyes on the road. And uh, my palms were all sweaty, and they're, you know, and you're trying to hug the center line as much as possible, stay as far away from the edge, and then there's a bus, you know, and you're like, ah, uh, it was, it was a terrifying uh, experience. And you get to the top, and you see the beautiful s- views, and then you have to turn around and come back, uh, which is even more scary because of the slope and the brakes, and there's, like, all these signs, don't let your brakes overheat. And, um, and the car that we had w- had one of those continuous uh, transmission things, so you couldn't shift into a lower gear like they tell you to. And I'm like, we're going to die. Our brakes are going to go out. And, um, anyway, it was a fun time. Um, and all along this road, there are different pullouts where you can pull over and get out, and there's this incredible views and beautiful scenery. And every time you get there, you think, okay, I've seen this gorgeous view. Do I really need to get back on the road of death and go up to the next view? And it's just going to be more mountains and more trees. And, and what's so, But you do, and you go. But every time you pull over and you see, you're like, do I really want to go? How committed am I to this? Now, a lot of people, that's the way they approach their relationship with God, right? I believe in Jesus. I like the idea of not going to hell when I die. That sounds really good. I love all the teachings of Jesus and love your enemies and don't judge others. And these are great things. Uh, I'll I'll go to church. I'll believe that Jesus is God. I'll, I'll do all that stuff. But how committed am I really? How much do I really want to commit my life to Christ? Right? If, if I go all in with Jesus, am I going to be a religious fanatic? You know, because if you watch the news, people that are fully committed to their religion are fanatics. And they're, they're dangerous, fundamentalists that you have to be careful about. Right? And, and, and do I want to be known as a religious, religious fanatic? If I'm all in with Jesus, then I'm going to be the Jesus freak at work or at school. Do I, am I really committed to that? Like, how much do I really want to give my life to God? I, can't I just believe in Jesus and get some of the benefits of that and go to church and try to be a good person and do my part, but, but keep God at sort of a safe distance? I don't really want God to mess around with my life. Right? I like my life. It's comfortable. It's safe. Uh, I, and I don't want Jesus to kind of take me over to that edge and get me closer to that edge. I don't know how fully committed I am to this. Yes, I believe it's real. Yes, I believe it's true. But what if I fully commit and nothing happens in my life? What if I fully commit and, and God doesn't 
do anything? Or, or what's God going to change? Or, or how's my life going to change, right? If you switch analogies, a lot of us love to follow Jesus on the beach, but we don't really want to get in the boat with him. Because once I get in the boat and I go out on the lake, I can't do anything else. I'm in the boat, I'm on the lake, there's no turning back, right? So I love standing on the beach with Jesus, hearing him teach on the shore and all that. But now he wants me to get in the boat. Do I want to get in the boat? What if I do? There's a lot of fear there. And I think there, we're going to see in Matthew's gospel today that there are people who struggled with those same fears. Some of Jesus' own followers and, and his own disciples struggled with some of those same fears. Um, there are three scenes we're going to look at in Matthew's gospel, and there are, are two kinds of fears in these scenes. But really, the question as we go through this story is, um, is this. I want to be fully devoted to Christ, but what if? What if? We can what if our faith to death if we're not afraid. I want to be all in with Jesus, but I'm scared. I'm scared to take that risk. What if? That's the question I think uh, is the driving question throughout uh, these stories. And so um, if you want to follow along in your Bible, Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, I'm just going to quickly walk us through all three scenes. I'm not going to read it, just kind of summarize it, but you're welcome to follow along in your text. Um, so in, in the first of the, the three scenes here, Jesus calms a storm. So he gets into the boat. He's just done the Sermon on the Mount. He's just done three other miracles. He's just done some other teaching. And then he gets into the boat. His disciples get into the boat after him. And they start heading out across the lake. And this massive storm comes up out of nowhere. And the water starts coming over the boat. The waves are going to swamp the boat. And Jesus is asleep in the boat. And his disciples were terrified. They come to Jesus. They, they shake him up awake. Lord, save us. We're dying. We're perishing. We're going to drown. And Jesus says something interesting. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rebukes the wind and the waves. The storm calms. The sea goes calms. And and the, the men in the boat are saying, wow, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? That's the first scene. Then they get to the other side of the lake. Uh, It's the region known as the Gadarenes. And when they get there, uh, two men who were uh, oppressed by demons come out of the tombs and they meet Jesus. These men were so violent and so crazy that any pastors who went by that way would be attacked. So no one could travel in that area. Uh, There was a graveyard there. They lived in the graveyard. They came out. They uh, met Jesus. And the demons, speaking through the men, say, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come to torture us before the time? And then they beg Jesus and they say, look, there's a, there's a herd of pigs over there. If you're going to cast us out of these men, send us into the pigs. So Jesus speaks one word, go. And all the demons flee. They go into the pigs. Now we know from the other gospel, uh, gospel accounts that there were several thousand pigs in this herd. They all rush down the bank into the lake and they drown. The herdsmen who are watching the pigs they're, they're scared. They flee. They run to the town. They tell the townspeople what happened, what Jesus did, what happened to these two demon-oppressed men. And the townspeople all come out. And instead of saying, thank you for healing these men, thank you for making our town safe again, they say, uh, can you leave? <laughs> Why don't you just leave our region? Go back across the lake. Interesting. So then Jesus gets in the boat, and he goes back across the lake. And when he arrives... 
some people bring him a paralyzed man, a paralytic. And when they bring this man on the stretcher, they carry him in, Jesus sees their faith, and he says to the paralyzed man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Interesting. They didn't come and ask for forgiveness. They brought a paralyzed man and needed healed. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes and religious leaders were there watching. And they said to, they said to themselves, Jesus is blaspheming. Why is he blaspheming? Well, only God can forgive sins. So if Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins, then he's claiming to be God, and that's blasphemy. And Jesus knows their thoughts. And so he says to them, why are you thinking evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk, be healed of your paralysis? And he says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins on earth, he turns to the paralyzed man and he says, rise up and walk. The man gets up, takes his bed, uh, carries it home. He's miraculously healed. That healing proved that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. If Jesus was blaspheming God, God would not have answered his prayer to heal the man. So this, this healing proves that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. The crowds who were watching saw it, and it's interesting, they were afraid. And they glorified God because God had given the authority to forgive sins to men. These are the three stories, and in these three stories, we see two kinds of fear on display. We see a fear that keeps God at a safe distance, and we see a fear that leads to worship. So let's look at the first one, a fear that keeps God at a safe distance. This is risk aversion. We're afraid to risk getting in the boat or fully committing to Christ. And, and this shows up in these stories in a couple of different ways, a couple of what-if scenarios. And the first story with the calming of the storm, don't you think it's odd that the disciples were out in a rowboat in the middle of a hurricane-level storm, and when they wake Jesus up, he says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Well, there's got to be something deeper going on in the story than just being afraid of the storm. Because... If you are in a rowboat in a hurricane, you should be afraid. (laughs) It's not weird that you would be afraid of drowning, right? That's a healthy fear. But Jesus says, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. There's something deeper going on. It's not just that they were afraid of the storm. What they were saying is, what if God doesn't show up? I want to be fully devoted to Christ, but what if God doesn't show up? What if Jesus drowns and we drown in the middle of this lake, in the middle of this storm? Well, if, if Jesus drowns in the middle of the lake, then maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And what does that mean for us? That means we were wrong. And that means we were fools. Right? We've left everything to follow Jesus because we thought he was the Messiah. And if he drowns in the middle of this lake, maybe he wasn't the Messiah. Not only are we going to die because we made the wrong decision, but we're going to die as fools. And everybody will say, there are those idiots that followed Jesus. They thought he was somebody he wasn't. They were afraid. What if God doesn't show up? Or maybe they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were afraid that God wasn't going to show up. And what does that mean about God? Does God even care? Does God even know? Right? Here we are in the middle of a storm. Uh, We're about to die. And where's God? sleeping 
right? How many times do we find ourselves awake at 2 a.m. in the morning in a difficult season or stretch of life, and what are the thoughts that are coming in our minds? Does God even know? Does God even care? You've been praying about this issue for weeks or even months. God hasn't healed you. God hasn't answered your prayer. Does God even know? God doesn't see you. God's not good. He doesn't care about your problem. He's not going to fix it, right? We are sometimes afraid to fully commit to God because we say, well, what if God doesn't show up? What if God doesn't care? God might not be as good as I thought he was. But in the story, God did show up. Jesus woke up, rebuked the wind and the waves, took care of the problem, got them through the storm, and their fear turned into worship. They said, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They weren't just talking about, like, asking a question. Oh, we don't know who Jesus is. What kind of man might this be? No, they were saying it was a statement in the form of a question, like saying, how awesome would it be if I actually won the HGTV million-dollar home giveaway? Like, man, that would be amazing. I'd have a million-dollar vacation home in Southern California. Actually, I I would not be amazing because I couldn't afford the taxes. But, right, you ask a question that's really a statement, that's the kind of thing they're saying. Like, wow, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They They were turned in from fear to worship. That's the first scene. The fear there is what if God doesn't show up? It, it causes us to keep God at a safe distance. The, uh, the second scene is the casting out of the demons, and the fear there is what if God asks something of me that I can't give? Jesus cast the demons into a herd of several thousand pigs. They all rushed down uh, into the lake and drowned. That was a pretty significant financial loss for that community. This was probably one of their primary uh, means of of income, of livelihood. And Jesus has just destroyed it in the lake. Jesus values people more than property. He values freedom more than financial success, right? We see that in the story. But oftentimes, we are kind of like the townspeople. We value our stuff and our comfort more than we value God's deliverance in our lives or in the lives of those around us. And the question is, you know, I want to be fully devoted to Christ, but what if God asks something of me that I don't want to do? Then what do I do? What if I say, God, I am all yours. I'm, everything I have is yours. My whole life is yours. And God's response is, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Well, then what do I do? I'm stuck. I either have to break my promise to God or I have to give everything I have away. And and how do I do that? And and, and what if I do that, and then everybody laughs at me? You sold all you had. You religious fanatic. You actually thought God was going to show up for you. You actually did that, right? And everybody makes fun of me, and God doesn't show up to do anything for me, and then I look like a fool. It's this vicious cycle that they're in. It's these fears that cause us to keep God at a safe distance, Right? What if God doesn't answer my prayer? What if I go across the street to pray for my neighbor and God doesn't heal her? Well, how does that make me look? What does that say about my faith or my God, right? What if God asks me to start a conversation about faith with my coworker? I don't want to do that. I I can't do that. That's not politically correct. That's not socially acceptable. They're going to think I'm a Jesus freak, a, a holy roller, a Bible thumper. 
right? What, is that really what, maybe, maybe I'll just say, I like Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I'm good with that, I'll go to church, I'll do my part, but don't really get too involved in my life. The question is, we have to decide if we trust God enough to let him have control of our lives. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, the Sermon on the Mount? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. At the end of the day, we have to decide who our master is. Are we going to get in the boat with Jesus, or are we going to keep God at a a safe distance? Are we going to allow him to have control of our lives or not? Now, uh, for this one, I need uh, a volunteer. Who wants to volunteer? I need a volunteer to illustrate this don't all raise your hands at once come on all right valerie everybody welcome valerie up valerie the brave this is a very special coffee cup to me it was given me by one of the teenagers uh, the year that i helped with uh, student ministry by the way that was one of the most fun things i've ever done in ministry is spend a year with the teenagers Um, And so I would encourage you to do that. But it says on it, pastor, because hardcore devil stomping ninja isn't an official job title. (laughs) I like that. So this is one of my favorite mugs. And um, Valerie, it's empty. So if you wouldn't mind, can I give you this mug and you just go fill it up with coffee from the fireside room? Here you go. No. Can you, would you mind to go fill it up? You can have the mug. Just, right? Okay, everybody say thank you. Isn't that how we often approach God with our lives? Okay, God, you can have my life, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to it. Like, hold on. Okay, God, you can have my life. You can have my life. You can have my life. You, but, but, right? It doesn't work. We're either all in with Jesus or we're not. We either give him our life or we don't. Jesus said, in Matthew 8, 26, when the disciples woke him up, he, his answer was, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? What does the word faith mean? Well, the word faith in the Bible doesn't mean what the word faith in popular culture means. In, in pop culture, the word faith means try really hard to make yourself believe something is true when you have no evidence or reason to believe it, right? Try really hard. I believe it's true. There is a Santa. I believe it's true. Sorry if there's kids in here. I believe it's true, right? The tooth fairy. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. That's what faith in our society means. There's no evidence. There's no reason. There's no anything to suggest that you should believe that's real, but you just try to force yourself to believe it anyway. Well, Jesus was not saying to his disciples, look, if you could just force yourself to believe that a rowboat can go through a hurricane, if you just try really hard to to believe that that's true, you don't have to be afraid. That's not what he was saying. In the Bible, the word faith means trust. That's what it means. It doesn't just mean try really hard to believe something is real. It means trust. When Jesus said, why are you afraid, you of little trust? He was saying, don't you trust God? Have you forgotten to trust God? Hey, don't forget who God is. He keeps his promises. He delivers. He follows through. He shows up. Sometimes our fears reveal where we're struggling to fully trust God. When you're struggling with anxiety or fear, take a minute and stop and analyze that. 
Where, what's behind that? Because that might be a place where I am forgetting to trust God in that moment. And we can trust God to get us through. There's a fear that leads to keeping God at a safe distance, what ifing our faith. The second type of fear that we see in these stories is a fear that leads to worship, to awestruck wonder. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and we sing, how wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. That's the fear that's shown in the, the paralytic story. When they brought the man to Jesus and, and Jesus didn't heal him right away, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Why did he say that? What was the, what's the point of that? Well, I think that harkens back to Matthew chapter 1 when the angel appeared to Joseph to say, don't divorce Mary. He said in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus didn't just come to save his people from their storms. He came to save them from their sins. Now, he also calmed storms along the way. He also cast demons out along the way. He also healed along the way. But his primary objective was to save us from our sins, not from our storms. And and the reason for that is because the deepest need we have is to be restored to a relationship with God the Father. And as long as our relationship with God is broken, it doesn't matter how many storms he calms or how many times he heals. If, If we are separated from God, we'll always find ourselves back in the midst of the storm. It's not until our our sin is forgiven and our relationship with God is restored that we begin to experience abundant life that Jesus promised. If that paralytic man had come to Jesus and had not been healed of his paralysis, if the only thing he had received from Christ was forgiveness, he would have received everything that he needed. And that's the point. Jesus didn't come just to save us from our storms, but to save us from our sins. And did you know that forgiving sin is the only kind of miracle that Jesus performed that is unique to Jesus? It's the only one. All the other kinds of miracles that Jesus did were also done by other people in the Bible. So Jesus healed a lot of sick people, right? In the Old Testament, there are many healing stories. One of my favorite is the story of Elisha healing the man Naaman from leprosy. He healed him. 2 Kings chapter 5. Peter, the apostle Peter, healed a crippled beggar in Acts chapter 3. There are many other stories of other people doing healings. Uh, Jesus had power over the forces of nature. He calmed the wind and the waves. We We just saw that story. Well, in Exodus chapter 14, Moses was leading the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They came to the Red Sea, and he raised up his staff, and the winds blew on the, and the sea, it blew back the waves of the sea, so it parted the sea, and then they crossed on dry ground. And then when they got to the other side, he raised his staff again, and the winds stopped blowing, and the waves crashed back down, right? Paul and Silas were in prison in Acts chapter 16, and they prayed, and, there, and an earthquake happened, and they were released from prison, Right? So power over the forces of nature. Jesus had it, so did other people. Feeding the multitudes. The story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is uh, a really cool story. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 4, fed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread. 
And his, his servant said to the prophet, how are we going to feed all these people with this little amount of bread? And, and the prophet said, uh, go ahead and pass it out. Everybody will eat as much as they want, and there will be leftovers. Sounds a lot like the m- multitudes that Jesus fed, right? Same kind of story. Casting out demons. Jesus did that. Well, in Acts chapter 19, even the Apostle Paul's sweaty handkerchiefs cast out demons. He would wipe the sweat off his, and then somebody would grab that handkerchief and run across town and rub Paul's sweat on a demon-possessed person, and the demon would leave, right? Uh, Even as something as amazing as raising the dead, which Jesus did on more than one occasion. In 1 Kings 17, the prophet Elijah raised a widow's son back to life. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, Peter raised a little girl named Tabitha back to life. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul was preaching a long-winded message, went late into the night. They were on the second story of a house, and a little boy was in the window, and he fell asleep listening to the sermon, and he fell out of the window and died. That's why we're all on one level. The Apostle Paul went downstairs, raised the kid back to life, went upstairs, and finished his sermon. Now that's commitment. Right? All these miracles that Jesus did were also done by other people. The only miracle that Jesus, the only kind of miracle that Jesus did that wasn't done by others was forgiving sin. What does that mean? Well, since only God has the authority to forgive sins, what that means is that Jesus is God. Jesus proved that he had the authority to forgive sins by healing the paralytic man, which means he is God, which is why Matthew 9, 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They were in the presence of God, and they were afraid. But their fear didn't lead them to push God to a safe distance. Their fear led them to worship. They glorified God. Because what they realized was this. Yes, we are in the presence of God, and yes, God is all-powerful, but he's also good. This paralytic man was a sinner who should have died in the presence of God, but God had mercy on him and forgave him. Jesus set the demon-oppressed men free. Jesus calmed the storm for his disciples. He got them through their tough spot, right? Yes, God is all-powerful, but God uses his power for our good. He is all good. Jesus came not only to be with you in the middle of the storm, but to lead you through the storm. He sees your fear, he understands your pain, he knows your need. He loves you more than your stuff. He desires your freedom more than your comfort. He has a purpose and a plan for each one of us. And that purpose and plan involves helping others to experience the same life and freedom and love that we have in Christ. And in order to pursue God's purpose, that might mean you need to be stretched and challenged and prepared. And that stretching and challenging and preparation is hard. It's not always comfortable, but it's good because God is good. And he gave his life on the cross so that he could say to you the same thing he said to that paralytic. Take heart, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Your relationship with the Father is restored. When we experience the love and the forgiveness of God through Jesus, our fear does not turn into terror. It turns into awe and wonder and worship. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and we sing, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me.